Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 82 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how is Jesus the resurrection and the life? So we're going to get some comfort from the word today during the coronavirus crisis. So hello, friends, we've made it to the weekend. Not that that means as much as it used to. Our family went for a walk today, a beautiful place, one of my favorite places in Central California, Point Lobos State Park. Um, and that's still allowed under day three of the California coronavirus shutdown. And my 16-year-old son asked what day it was tomorrow. Upon finding it out that it was Saturday, he sort of sadly remarked, I guess that doesn't really mean anything anymore. And honestly, I guess at least in the short term, especially if you were in a nation or a state that is sort of locked down right now, I suppose he's right to some degree. How rapidly the world has changed, and yet, take heart, how constant is the character and the love of God. Consider Malachi chapter 3, 5 through 6, which says, I will come to you in judgment. This is God speaking. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob had not been destroyed. So that's That's a lot to unpack there, and we'll spend some more time in that passage when we get to Malachi. But the number one thing I see there is uh, the compassion of God for the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and also his his statement, they do not fear me. Uh, that's important. We must fear the Lord. And But he says there, and this is the comforting part, I have not changed. I, the Lord, do not change. He is still on his throne. Yes, he's shaking the world right now, but he is good, and we are not consumed or destroyed because of his great mercy. So today's Bible readings include Exodus 32, Proverbs 8, John 11, and Ephesians 1. Exodus 32 contains what may be one of the most unintentionally funny passages in the entire Bible, a passage that shows us an 80-year-old men are capable of coming up with excuses for their bad behavior that are just as bad as the excuses of children and teenagers. Verse 21 says, Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such grave sin? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. (laughs) That's, That's just, that's the dumbest thing in the world. And keep in mind, Aaron was like in his mid-80s when he said that. Aaron, no offense, brother, we don't believe you. That's not our focus today. Our focus passage today is John chapter 11, and our big Bible question comes from verses 23 through 26. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's a good question that you and I should be asking right now. Do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus? Things are scary right now. And if most of us are being honest, uh, our great fear is mostly about death, right? I mean, there's probably other things we're scared of too, losing our job and financial issues and things like that. But uh, death has got to be up there near the top. Now, maybe we aren't ourselves afraid to die, but maybe we're afraid somebody close to us will die. And honestly, that fear is one of the main reasons right now the world is shaking from this coronavirus situation. Now, to be clear, this is not another flu or a spicy flu or whatever people are calling it. This is not overblown. Consider Italy, which is being devastated by the coronavirus right now. During this flu season in Italy from October of 2019, To January 20th of 2020, approximately 2.7 million Italian people got the flu. Now, a lot more have probably got it since uh, January the 20th, but this is just from October to January the 20th. 2.7 million Italians got the flu. During that time period, around 240 of those Italians died of the flu. 2.7 million infected, 240 deaths. That's bad. That's a lot of flu. That's a lot, a lot of flu. And a lot of sadness to lose 240 people. However, the coronavirus is very, very different. Thus far, since January, over 47,000 Italians have gotten the coronavirus, much less than 2.7 million, and more than 4,000 have died. Now, you run the numbers on that, and those numbers are scary and eye-opening. And But hear me, I'm not saying this to frighten you in the least, but to sober us up a little bit, especially those of us who are dismissing this as overhyped and overblown. This thing is bad, and it's devastating the state of Washington, the state of California, and the state of New York right now in a way that shows us Americans are not exempt in the least from this thing. So what's our response to that? Is it to be afraid? Actually, I don't think so. My son I mentioned earlier, the new 16-year-old, he sent me, right before I recorded this podcast, a fantastic video from Francis Chan, uh, who was uh, a writer, who is a writer and a church planter and a pastor, just moved to Hong Kong. And that video underscored one important theological truth from the Word of God that every one of us should be aware of right now. And that is this, the most often repeated command in the Bible is... Can you guess? What is it? The most often repeated command in the Bible? Fear not. Do not be afraid. So, how can we not give in to fear in the midst of this scary pandemic? I'm glad you asked. Let's read John 11 and then come back and talk about it. John chapter 11 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. 
Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there twelve hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep, so Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin or Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too so that we may die with him. And when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha told him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. 
Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. So, why do we not give in to fear? Well, the reason we don't give in to fear, in the face of a very real and powerful enemy like the coronavirus or whatever else, is because the worst it can do is kill. You might think, well, that's pretty bad. And you know what? It is pretty bad. It's just not an ultimate bad. It's a temporary bad, according to Jesus. For instance, let me give you an example of a temporary bad. When I was a teenager, the exact age of my son right now, or maybe even a year younger, I was riding on my 10-speed in a cul-de-sac where we lived that was kind of slanted downhill. Uh, I was wearing shorts and spinning in ever-tightening circles faster and faster. Uh, And don't do this, because all of a sudden my bike lost leverage and I skidded on my leg across the asphalt. Now, it's nothing like a motorcycle wreck or anything like that, but that was my leg on uh, my thigh on asphalt, and that skid took off kind of close to a square foot of flesh from the side of my thigh. And I gotta tell you, that was really, really painful. But it wasn't as painful as the next few days because that sucker got worse. It took about a month or more to heal and it was miserable for that whole month because it would weep or drain through bandages and clothes and whatever. Yeah, I know that's totally gross. But you know what? That was so long ago and it was so temporary that I sort of chuckle about it now. I don't even really cringe anymore. Believe it or not, death will be like that when we are standing in the promise of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. So consider this paradoxical promise of Jesus from Luke chapter 21, verse 16. And he says, You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now listen to that. You will be betrayed. You will be hated. Betrayed by members of your family. Man, what's worse than that? Not only that, well, hey, you're going to be killed. But then he says, not a hair of your head will be lost. 
what the heck, Jesus? You said we're going to be betrayed, we're going to be hated, we're going to be killed. How can we keep all of our hair, right? What does that mean? And the wonderful answer is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in Jesus, even if they die, will live. That's good news for the follower of Jesus, according to Paul, according to the Bible, to live is Christ and to die is gain, a net gain for us. How? How is this possible? Because he is the resurrection and the life. Think about Hebrews chapter 6. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. So you're afraid right now. If you are in Christ, a follower of him, I've got good news for you. You have an anchor that has been set into the holy of holies of God, and your hope has been secured for you by Jesus. So that's fantastic news. He is the resurrection and the life. You have an anchor. You don't have to hold on to the anchor with your power. That anchor is so heavy, it's going to hold no matter what happens. First John 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Look, we have this hope that when he appears, we're going to be like him with a resurrected body, with all of our hair, maybe even some of the hairs that have fallen out a while ago. In the coronavirus, we're facing a scary enemy, to be sure. But we face it with an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-merciful Jesus, with a hope in him that is firm and secure like an anchor in our soul. So let's close with a couple of uh, C.S. Lewis thoughts on Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The first one is pretty deep, so feel free to come to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, to read it or back up and listen a couple of times. And this is what Lewis says. Jesus is the representative dyer of the universe. And for that very reason, he is the resurrection and the life. Or conversely, because he truly lives, he truly dies, for that is the very pattern of reality. Because the higher can descend into the lower. He from all eternity has been incessantly plunging himself in the blessed death of self-surrender to the Father, can also most fully descend into the horrible, involuntary death of the body. Because vicariousness is the very idiom of the reality as created, his death can become ours. The whole miracle, far from denying what we already already know of reality, writes the comment which makes that cribbed text plain, or rather, proves itself to be the text on which nature was only the commentary. In science, we have been reading only the notes to a poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. 
Now, like I said, that's pretty deep. But what Lewis is saying there is that the greatest reality, the greatest science, the greatest thing nature points us to is the overcoming death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's vicarious in that because he lives, we will experience that resurrection and life. This one might be a little more clear. Lewis writes, we come to the strangest story of all, the story of the resurrection. It's very necessary to get that story clear. I once heard a man say, the importance of the resurrection is that it gives evidence of survival, evidence that the human personality survives beyond death. On that view, what happened to Christ would be what has always happened to all men, the difference being that in Christ's case, we were privileged to see it happen. This is certainly not what the earliest Christian writers thought. Something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. The door which had always been locked had, for the first time, been forced open. This is something quite distinct from mere ghostly survival. I don't mean that the disciples disbelieved in ghostly survival. On the contrary, they believed in it so firmly that, on more than one occasion, Christ had to assure them that he was not a ghost. The point is that while believing in survival, they yet regarded the resurrection as something totally different and new that went beyond merely surviving as a ghost. The resurrection narratives are not a picture of survival after death. They record how a totally new mode of being has arisen in the universe. Something new had appeared in the universe, as new as the first coming of organic life. This man, Jesus, after death, does not get divided into ghost and corpse. A new mode of being has arisen. That is the story. What are we going to make of it? Pretty fascinating and deep stuff here. Well, let's close with this one little bit of fiction uh, that also talks about the resurrection from our friend C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, The Silver Chair, which is in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And it describes a picture of somebody being resurrected. Then Aslan stopped. And if you don't know, Aslan represents Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. Then Aslan, and he's a lion, that's important. Aslan stopped and the children looked into the stream. And there on the golden gravel bed of the stream lay King Caspian dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in it like waterweed, and all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was itself a single solid diamond. And Jill noticed that Eustace looked neither like a child crying nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. At least that's the nearest she could get to it. But really, as she said, people don't seem to have any particular ages on that mountain. Son of Adam, said Aslan, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pads towards Eustace. Must I? said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. Then as Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad, and there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness that you have ever seen or imagined, and it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. 
At the same moment, the doleful music stopped, and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether, and his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and the eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leaped up and stood before them. A very young man, or even a boy, but Jill couldn't say which because of people having no particular ages in Aslan's country. Even in this world, of course, it is the stupidest children who are the most childish and the stupidest grown-ups who are most grown-up. And he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go around the huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king, and Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last, Caspian turned to the others. He gave a great laugh of astonished joy. I'm not sure what exactly resurrection is going to look like. Spoiler alert, I have no idea. But I appreciate Lewis's portrayals of heaven and resurrection and such and consider them to be, they just have the ring of genuineness to them. Um, I can't wait to see how close he got but um, I hope that's encouraging to you even more. I hope the Word of God is encouraging to you. And we're going to keep reading the Word of God, beginning with Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them, and I can destroy destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on the people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. 
The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, It's not the sound of a victory cry and not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around them. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about three thousand men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. The following day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. May they have made a god of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 1. Doesn't wisdom call out? Doesn't understanding make her voice heard? At the heights overlooking the road, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Besides the gates leading into the city, at the main entrance, she cries out, People, I call out to you. My cry is to the children of Adam. Learn to be shrewd, you who are inexperienced. Develop common sense, you who are foolish. Listen, for I speak of noble things, and what my lips say is right. For my mouth tells the truth, and wickedness is detestable to my lips." All the words from my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. All of them are clear to the perceptive and right to those who discover knowledge. Accept my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and nothing desirable can equal it. I, wisdom, share a home with the shrewdness, and have knowledge and discretion." 
To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. I possess good advice and sound wisdom. I have understanding and strength. It is by me that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me princes lead, as do nobles and all righteous judges. I love those who love me, and those who search for me find me. With me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than solid gold, and my harvest than pure silver. I walk in the ways of righteousness along the paths of justice, giving wealth as an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation, before his works of long ago. I was formed before ancient times, from the beginning before the earth began. I was born when there was no watery depths and no springs filled with water. Before the mountains were established, prior to the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the land, the fields, or the first soil on earth, I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the oceans gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command, when he laid out the foundations of the earth. I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. And now, sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Listen to instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the posts of my doorway. For the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks to you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of His strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And He subjected everything under His feet and appointed Him as head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Praise Jesus. He is the Lord of his church, his body. And we look to him in these troubled times and may his word and his spirit comfort and edify you, my dear friends. Don't be afraid. Look to Jesus. Godspeed.